Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome, everyone, to New Books in History. This is Ryan Tripp, your host. I'm here today with Martin Jay. He is Sidney Hellman Ehrman, Professor of History Emeritus at the University of California, Berkeley. This year, he published Splinters in Your Eye, Frankfurt School Provocations. Welcome to the show, Professor Jay. Uh, Thanks for having me. Great pleasure to be here. So let's just start off uh, with uh, preliminary questions, and we'll we'll get into uh, more specific arguments as we proceed. So the book was published by uh, Verso, and uh, one of the early arguments in the book is, uh, well, why did Georg uh, Lukács refer to the early Frankfurt School and the circumstances of its founding as the Grand Hotel Abgunt? even as members initially pursued an imminent critique of society and lambasted the search for origins, foundations, and these kind of founding moments as both theoretically problematic and politically suspect. Uh, It would take a long time to explain all the background of that. Lukács was himself present uh, in uh, 1922 at the uh, first Marxist work week, uh, which uh, gave birth ultimately to the Frankfurt School. He was among the figures there, Karl Korsch, Frederick Pollock, uh, a number of other figures, Karl August Fitvogel, and even Richard Zorga, who made uh, his reputation as a spy. So he was, in a way, part of the larger intellectual formation out of which they came, uh, a formation that later became known as Western Marxism, uh, distinguished from its more... Uh, Orthodox, communist, uh, Eastern Marxist alternative. But, and this is the crucial reason why he ultimately uh, criticized them, he remained a communist. He remained within the Communist Party of Hungary and then uh, during even the Stalinist period always maintained allegiance uh, to uh, the uh, Soviet uh, model. And was very desperate to avoid what he saw as the impotence of intellectuals who left the party or were never a member of it, who tried to be free-floating or outside of political uh, engagement. And the members of the Frankfurt School fit that latter description. They were, uh, for the most part, uh, politically non-engaged. That is to say, they were uh, intellectuals who tried to be above the fray. They were not, in most cases, party members. Some briefly went through party allegiances in the early 20s, but most of the significant figures did not. And so Lukács basically had uh, scorn for leftist intellectuals who were not able to find uh, a way to unify theory and practice. Radical theory, yes. Critique, yes. But uh, practical uh, impotence, practical uh, non-engagement. And critical theory, therefore, from his perspective, uh, was self-indulgent. They had uh, enough of the comforts to live in a grand hotel looking down at a world that was uh, understood in an apocalyptic fashion, Uh, looking into the abyss, but they had no ability to 
link up from Lukács's perspective with the one movement, uh, a Leninist movement uh, that would ultimately be able to uh, move us back from the abyss. Now, they themselves understood uh, that they had uh, what might be called a political deficit, that they could not find a link between theory and practice. But they also recognized that what Lukács had done was sign a devil's pact uh, with the party, uh, sacrificing some of his intellectual independence, some of his theoretical integrity, and became in a way prisoner of a party that claimed to represent the realization of Marxist theory, but in fact had in many ways betrayed it. So there's a kind of tragic dimension to the Frankfurt School's um, uh, long history, tragic in the sense that it understood that a critical theory needed to change the world, needed to be effective in the world, needed to connect theory and practice, uh, needed to realize what Marx had argued in the 11th thesis of uh, Feuerbach, that interpretation was somehow ultimately not enough, and yet also understood that in the present world, there was no clear way to unify theory and practice, no clear uh, agent, no clear historical subject, no clear meta uh, subject that could somehow create uh, the, uh, the new world after a meaningful revolution. So they retreated into what Jürgen Habermas was later to call a strategy of hibernation, waiting for uh, some sort of practical possibility to occur, waiting for objective conditions to change. Lukács, more impatient, more committed to change now, scorned them, therefore, as pseudo-intellectuals, as phony intellectuals. Uh, Bertolt Brecht uh, shared that, although he was very different in his attitudes towards many things uh, from Lukács. He nonetheless shared the scorn that the Frankfurt School basically were uh, what was sometimes called uh, uh, parlor or salon uh, Marxists, people who uh, were uh, willing to talk willing to criticize, but not willing to act. So for our listeners, this is a collection of essays on the Frankfurt School, and we're going to be uh, relating those essays back at the later in the show to the title, uh, Splinters in Your Eye. First, I want to address certain arguments, though. How and why did arguments by Frankfurt School members, including Jürgen Habermas's later depiction of Gunt as one out of many justifications for truth claims, which Martin Heidegger ultimately resisted, how did this adhere to certain ideas promulgated by Frederick von Schelling, particularly his critique of the absolute union of existence and essence, subject and sub- substance, without embracing the irrational? And if possible, can you also compare and contrast Frankfurt School ideas with Hannah Arendt's assessment, if any, of Grunt, fatality, as well as multiple founding moments? Okay, we have to step back a bit. I mean, this is a, a very vexed and uh, complicated philosophical and political issue, and I, I can't do justice to it in a few sound bites. But basically, the, the problem is this. Uh, in the uh, famous essay on critical and traditional theory, Max Horkheimer in 1937 uh, had argued that a critical theory basically uh, did not accept the status quo, did not accept the facts of the world as inevitable, did not accept the naturalization of history as somehow unchangeable, and instead argued for a position which basically uh, imbued those facts with values that criticized the status quo and pointed towards an alternative future. So then the next question that had to be asked was, what was the ultimate uh, standpoint from which that value critique was launched? What was the ultimate, uh, we might call it foundation or grunt or ground, 
from which critique uh, could be made. Uh, is it simply uh, the arbitrary opinion of somebody who is critical? Is it simply uh, a kind of subjective uh, and therefore, uh, you know, basically not very binding alternative to the present? Because there are obviously lots of those that uh, can be, uh, you know, made with absolutely no uh, ability to persuade. So then the question uh, was uh, posited, what is the normative foundation of critique? What is the uh, normative basis which will persuade people that it's not simply subjective opinion? Now, the Frankfurt School had to struggle with this issue, and I'm not sure they have fully resolved it, but basically they had to consider several alternatives. One was the alternative that we might call objective scientific or philosophical knowledge, which has no relation whatsoever to who holds the knowledge, to who has the, uh, the superior vantage point. So here it's a kind of what might be called contemplative objectivist view in which science or what the Germans call Wissenschaft or philosophy or something that gives you a superior insight into normative uh, alternatives. Um, and for example, natural law theory thought that you could use nature uh, as the standard by which you measured uh, critical uh, uh, potential. So this is one position, but they ultimately felt this was too uh, abstract, too objective, too dispassionate, too uh, basically external to the world in which uh, they and everybody else was uh, grounded. So then the question is, are there, the alternative is, are there particular vantage points? Are there particular standpoints? Are there particular places in the world which give you uh, some sort of purchase on normative uh, critique. And Marxism traditionally argued that the proletariat gave uh, a certain advantage over uh, bourgeois or, uh, or uh, let's say, so-called free-floating intellectuals because the proletariat represented in concrete material terms within the current totality a potential to be a universal class that would in the future represent all of humankind. And therefore, the vantage point of the proletariat, the ability to argue from within the experience and the practice of the proletariat, uh, was the source of superior glint or vantage point. Now, here, too, the Frankfurt School uh, basically had abandoned this position because uh, from their perspective, uh, the proletariat was not fulfilling the theoretical uh, potential that had been ascribed to it by Marx, that it had uh, lost its way and was no longer possibly uh, a potential universal class. So this left them without uh, a viable normative uh, vantage point. Now, from the beginning, however, and this is where a figure like Schelling rather than Hegel comes in, there is uh, a philosophical awareness of the difficulty of going back to uh, the or or the initial origin, the initial point from which critique is launched, as if there were a moment uh, that is temporally uh, uh, temporally anterior to the uh, moment from which uh, we are observing the world today, that we could somehow base our critique on that moment, the moment of original insight from which we have fallen. Uh, and Adorno in particular seems to have become skeptical of the search for that moment of origin, the moment of ground. Uh, grounding is a kind of architectural metaphor that you have a foundation upon which you build a, uh, an edifice. You have a ground upon which you uh, create uh, something that transcends it or 
something that goes above it is a form out of which uh, uh, something meaningful can be construed that will uh, have a critical edge. So Adorno ultimately, and he more than the other figures of the school, found, I think, in a kind of indirect way, in Schelling's critique of the possibility of origins, of the impossibility, really, of finding an or moment, an or ground, uh, a, uh, let's call it, primal moment before uh, the fall into history, that it was impossible to find that philosophically. And there are lots of complicated reasons, theological as well as philosophical, that this was impossible. That instead, one to have one needed to have, if you say with the theological, an apophatic philosophy, which is a philosophy that is one of negation, which can't name anything positive, which can't name anything uh, that is somehow complete and transcendent, but always can only give and gesture towards negative uh, descriptions of something which uh, is uh, impure, something which is uh, not yet fulfilled, something which anticipates a reconciliation which it can't depict. So Adorno ultimately argued against what he called the mania for foundations or grounds, uh, turning that idea of living uh, uh, on the uh, edge of the abyss, the uh, Lukács notion of uh, the Grand Hotel Abgrund, into a virtue that we don't need to have points of origin. We don't need to have absolutely uh, firm normative grounds to make critique. And if there is a ground at all, it's an anticipated possible future, a moment of pacification, redemption, whatever fancy word you want to use for the end of the uh, debilitating contradictions and antagonisms of uh, most of human uh, social relations and human history. So the ground such as it is becomes not a firm ground in the past of foundation, not a firm ground even in the present of normative solidity, not a standpoint, but some sort of yearn for alternative in a future which is yet to be achieved. Now, this is a much more tenuous ground, a much more, uh, we might say, uh, vulnerable and volatile ground. But ultimately, uh, I think the Frankfurt School understood that it was impossible to come up with an absolutely firm ground, either in transcendent ahistoric critique, such as natural law theory, or even in imminent critique, in which one measured the standards, the goals, the norms of this society against the actual practice, uh, even though, to be sure, it often did use imminent critique in its analysis. So for all of these reasons, it struggled with the need to find the critique uh, and the later generation of the Frankfurt School, epitomized by Jürgen Habermas, sought an entirely different answer uh, in uh, his uh, understanding of communicative uh, interaction and uh, the notions of uh, universal pragmatics and speech theory, which uh, is something I don't discuss in this book, but which um, was uh, at the center of my previous book on the Frankfurt School struggle to come up with an idea of reason. Uh, reason after its eclipse. But that's an entirely different story, which I think we probably would be wise not to try to uh, spell out now. Well, uh, on that note, um, for our listeners, so uh, one of your chief contributions to historiography was the dialectical imagination, something I'm familiar with. Um, can you please provide for our listeners the research background to that Harvard dissertation, which became the dialectical imagination in the early 70s, including your early meetings and correspondence with members of the Frankfurt School, how uh, latent internal conflicts and deaths affected your research, the fallout from your question on the school's ethnic origins, 
and their concerns over the initial working title, Permanent Exiles. Okay, uh, I gather that we're not talking about my own uh, background in, uh, in um, researching my dissertation that became the dialectical imagination. Um, it's so long ago, it's now more than 50 years since I began the dissertation back in 1967. Basically, I was interested uh, in two things. One, the intellectual migration from Germany to the United States, which was then for the first time gaining uh, a kind of scholarly interest. Uh, many of them, many of the emigres were still alive and uh, were interested in creating uh, an historical account of their uh, experiences. And so I knew a few of them uh, and became uh, especially interested because my then dissertation director, H. Stuart Hughes, uh, was friendly with many of the others. He had been uh, with uh, Franz Neumann and Herbert Marcuse and others in the OSS. The second interest was trying to make sense of Herbert Marcuse's work. In the 1960s, Marcuse was uh, a very, very influential figure in the New Left. Uh, and I had read uh, Eurasian Civilization, One Dimensional Man, and uh, knew about uh, his uh, work from friends who would study with him. Uh, but I had no inkling, really, of the background uh, of the kind of uh, continental Marxist theory out of which he had emerged. And so I was very curious about the somewhat exotic source of his ideas. At that time, you have to uh, understand there was very little. American, uh, Anglo-American understanding of what later became Western Marxism. I contributed um, an essay on Horkheimer to the uh, collection edited by Carl Clare and Dick Howard called The Unknown Dimension, which had essays on figures like Gramsci and Sartre and Althusser and uh, others who were almost completely unknown in the United States as Marxists. Anyway, the uh, connections that uh, Hughes had with people like Marcuse, with Paul Lazarsfeld, uh, made it possible for me to gain access uh, to uh, many of the, uh, the figures who were still alive and who uh, allowed me then to see, in certain cases, especially Lowenthal and Paul Lazarsfeld, uh, some of the materials they had uh, collected. I went to Germany in 1969, a very fraught and difficult period in the history of the school. Adorno was much beleaguered by uh, his students. Habermas was also at that time, much younger, uh, but nonetheless still uh, an important philosophical uh, giant and political figure in German thought, uh, also much beleaguered. And I went and spoke with uh, Adorno without much success. Uh, he obviously was uh, suspicious of someone who would come with uh, modest understanding of his ideas, which was indeed my case at the time. Uh, and felt that I had only a, what he called a nose for the dirt, and so gave me little help. But then I went to, to uh, Montagnola in the Lugano area, the Ticino uh, area, rather, uh, of Switzerland near Lugano, uh, where I uh, spent a lot of time with Horkheimer and Pollock, and they were very helpful, uh, giving me lots of uh, time and answering many questions. Of course, Horkheimer then wrote uh, a very helpful introduction to the book. Uh, it was complicated partly because I was also aware of different um, memories, different interpretations uh, school members had of their own experience. The most obvious case was Eric Fromm, who granted me several interviews and was very helpful in responding to the chapter I wrote on the Frankfurt School in Psychoanalysis. Fromm had broken with the school, was very hostile to uh, 
Horkheimer and Adorno um, had really gone in a very different direction. And my own uh, inclination was to be more sympathetic to the Marcusean version, the Adornoian version, we might say, of critical theory than Fromm's. But uh, I didn't want to uh, you know, neglect his contribution. And so I hope the book succeeded in showing how crucial Eric Fromm was to the original constitution of the uh, Frankfurt School's work on Marx and Freud. Um, and there are other figures as well. Uh, Lazarsfeld's role, for example, was disputed by Adorno and so forth. Uh, there were lots of tensions that I became only um, sometimes even dimly aware of, sometimes more acutely aware. But I tried to uh, follow a precept of uh, Hegel's, which I thought was very useful in giving me a sense of proportion. Hegel once said that no hero is a hero to his valet. In other words, if you know all the dirt about somebody, know all the human all to human aspects of their work, uh, their lives, you realize that everybody has feet of clay. But then Hegel added, that's not because heroes are not heroes, it's because valets are valets. In other words, the heroic is still there despite the human alter human qualities that make them human. And a valet who is only interested in, uh, you know, somehow the disputes, the personal, uh, uh, personal conflicts, the um, very, uh, in some sense, uh, uh, unheroic qualities of the heroes, one then fails to recognize that they have uh, something uh, that uh, still can be seen as heroic. And so I tried to make sense of the work and tried to make sense of the uh, legacies rather than uh, the conflicts and the personal disputes, which I learned about but didn't want to foreground. So, uh, you know, the, the, the book, of course, uh, began a long train of um, much more uh, detailed and much more nuanced interpretations, both of their lives and work. Uh, and I have always felt that, uh, you know, my own account was a preliminary and initial uh, account, which was more stimulus than a concluding account. Uh, it was never intended to be the definitive account of their uh, legacy, and I'm happily... Uh, now, happily surprised by how much has happened since I initially wrote it. How did Max Orkheimer's introduction to the Family of Man photographic expi- exhibition at the 1958 Frankfurt America House entwine mimetic empathy and certain aspects of a Kantian perspective with liberal American intellectual traditions? And how do these arguments compare with his fate of the individual and democratic families in the earlier, the 1957, Concept of Man? I, I think it's um, uh, a kind of curious thing, this uh, uh, Max Horkheimer relationship to the Sleichen Family of Man exhibition. It's curious because it goes against uh, what, what he argued in his introduction, goes against many of the uh, more critical uh, remarks that Horkheimer, Adorno, and other Frankfurt School uh, theoreticians made about uh, what might be called liberal or bourgeois humanism. Uh, they basically uh, were suspicious of what they saw as the ahistorical, anthropological, and even ideological function of humanism. Uh, they were very uh, much a um, uh, very much anticipating what might be seen as the more recent post-structuralist, even post-modernist critique of a simple bourgeois humanism. But in that particular uh, moment in their history, 1957. Uh, when Horkheimer was asked to introduce 
1958, the Frankfurt America House uh, exhibition uh, that uh, Steichen uh, had first uh, put together in the United States in the family of man. He was um, uh, arguing from a somewhat different perspective, a much more pragmatic one, based on the need to uh, in some ways, uh, reestablish a kind of liberal humanism in a Germany, which for 12 years, from 1933 to 45, had uh, damned humanism in general uh, in the name of a biologistic uh, nationalism, which was uh, obviously hostile to uh, universalist values. So uh, using the family of man as a, uh, you might say, ideological uh, uh, tool, he argued for uh, liberal Kantian values of cosmopolitanism and universalism, uh, argued for the idea that uh, somehow all of humankind, no matter what the ethnic or religious or other identity of various members might be, uh, that every human uh, needed to uh, you know, somehow be accorded dignity. And that it was possible for this visual manifestation of that uh, to be uh, understood as in the service of that goal. Now, what also makes it ironic is that the Frankfurt School, and we briefly mentioned this, uh, I guess, before, was critical of the idea of uh, using images uh, to express utopian, um, uh, utopian possibilities. That is to say, an image of uh, paradise or an image of reconciliation was something they wanted to avoid. Uh, following the famous Bilderverbot, or Jewish taboo on images, which goes back to the Bible and its prohibition on making a graven image of God or a graven image uh, of, uh, you know, in, say, even the Islamic tradition of humans in general. So basically, what the Fragment School had always argued was that images by themselves are insufficient alternatives uh, to names, concepts, to language. And yet, in this, uh, in this, um, Exhibition. There are, of course, images of families and of people doing things in uh, daily life and uh, working and uh, leisure activities, which suggest a kind of human commonality. And uh, in this one case, Horkheimer backed off the ideal of uh, the Bilderverbot and said, no, no, images mimetically can show, can represent, uh, can make immediate. Uh, the ways in which humans are part of a larger family. He also accepted, in a way, that metaphor that human beings are members of a family, a metaphor which had been abused by the Nazis, who talked about the national family and talked about a people's community and talked about things that were, in a way, quasi-organic and biological. So in many ways, this was a very anomalous um, uh, intervention that Horkheimer was making in that uh, introduction. But what makes it understandable is that in the context of a Germany, uh, post-Nazi Germany, that was trying to gain its footing as part of the uh, larger, uh, let's call it uh, Western world, I hate to say, uh, you know, the uh, free world, but because there were so many ways in which the West was not yet free, but at least was trying to avoid falling back into either Nazism or being seduced by communism, uh, he decided for tactical reasons to promote what in the larger theoretical context of his work and the work of the private school in general, they would have probably been more comfortable condemning as ideological. Despite the gendered and racial implications 
uh, Vorkheimer's advocacy for ties of kinship between all members, quote unquote, of the human race. How did this introduction emphasize the critical potential inherent even in the, quote, most insidiously consolatory ideological formations, such as the critical work that the concept of essence might do when it, it is transformed from an eternal truth into an, a, into an essentialist normative potential to be realized historically? Uh, here, the crucial question is the ambivalent, we might say, or ambiguous, would be a better way to put it, uh, potential of a philosophy of essences, a philosophy that says that there is something beyond superficial phenomenal differences, differences of appearance, something which is shared, a, a concept that unifies, that uh, in a way makes identical that which is non-identical. Now, in most respects, the Frankfurt School, and Adorno in particular, in his idea of negative dialectics, was critical of conceptual essentialism, of finding some sort of concept under which one could subsume particulars, under which the non-identical could be commensurated into the identical. And yet, and yet, and this is why they're always dialectical in the sense that they constantly find alternatives in a very different direction from uh, generalization. Uh, and yet, essences could also be understood. And this was an argument that um, Marcuse had made as early as his 19, uh, I think it was 34 or 5 essay on the concept of essence. Essences could be understood not as existing inherently, naturally, eternally, uh, as concepts which, uh, under which uh, the particular, non-particular, non-identical are subsumed, not as already existing, but rather as normative potentials, as uh, ways to conceptualize a future which was, as Ernst Bloch would put it, not yet. And so the family of man represents a kind of human brotherhood or uh, human solidarity or human, uh, let's say, um, general, uh, generalized dignity, which doesn't exist now. Humans, uh, alas, are now in antagonistic relations to relationships to each other, are uh, divided by ethnic, class, uh, religious, uh, and other uh, ways to split uh, us into warring tribes. But if we assume that there is something called a family of man, and you know, despite the gender implications, let's say a family of humanity, we have the potential maybe to uh, aspire to that condition in which everyone gives is given equal status. I mean, it's the idea of an equality uh, of uh, dignity, an equality of recognition, an equality of uh, condition, ultimately, which allows us to realize individual potential. So it's not something which should be celebrated as essentially there now, that everybody has this, uh, no matter what their empirical conditions are, but as a normative goal one which can be seen as never fully achieved. There's always, let's say, an asymptotic uh, approximation, which is never fully realized, but which nonetheless gives us a standard by which we can measure the present uh, as inadequate. It comes back basically to the old idea of imminent critique, which, as I said earlier, was one of the potential sources of grounding value. Imminent critique in the sense of, we believe there is a family of man now, but Reality shows that there is not yet one, and therefore we measure the model of the family of man, the model of human 
uh, shared dignity and equality, we measure it against the inadequate reality, uh, which, alas, has not yet achieved it. But we hope, because we have not yet given up that ideal, that uh, we can move in a closer and closer approximation uh, to what we hope will be uh, a future condition. What were the impulses and consequences for Eric Fromm, Max Orkheimer, and the Frankfurt School's wedding between cognitive Freudian psychoanalysis and historical materialism, even after Fromm's break over such psychoanalysis and the commodity fetish? Uh, the source of the Frankfurt School's um, what is often called marriage of Marx and Freud, of historical materialism and psychoanalysis, the source of that uh, is, uh, I think, uh, multifarious. First, they were very much, um, I think, interested in uh, trying to uh, explain the failure of the working class uh, to achieve its uh, uh, scribe goal of uh, being a universal class, and wanted to understand the deeper psychological mechanisms that uh, allowed working class um, uh, people to uh, somehow accept uh, authoritarian rather than uh, emancipatory political solutions, or simply to be uh, nervous about change and accept the status quo. So that was one source to explain the failure, we might say, uh, of the working class. A second source of their interest in marrying Freud and Marx was an understanding of the appeal of fascism. Uh, fascism as something that Marxism had uh, not fully anticipated. I mean, one might argue that in the 18th Brumaire uh, of Louis Napoleon, Marx had talked about uh, some aspects of proto-fascist um, authoritarianism, but really had not fully plumbed its psychological basis. So psychoanalysis gave the Frankfurt School some weapons, we might say, in the search for an understanding of the uh, sources of, uh, of, the, uh, uh, of the fascination of, uh, uh, of fascism that uh, made uh, it's so crucial uh, a challenge to Marxism. Thirdly, they understood that fascism was, uh, I'm sorry, the psychoanalysis was in touch with a, what might be called a deeper layer of human um, uh, existence than uh, that which was conducted on the level of reason, uh, even of language understood uh, as communicative uh, on the level of spirit, that it got us in touch with the body, with materiality, with uh, what constituted uh, the deeper layer of human desire. And so there was something in psychoanalysis that was co uh, consonant with the materialism, we might say, of Marxism. It was a materialism of the body, a materialism of uh, the uh, suffering body, the body uh, in pain, as well as the desiring body. And as a result, psychoanalysis gave them a vocabulary to deal with what might even be seen as the utopian potential of a redeemed body, one which would not be repressed or would not be uh, a body that was ascetically denied. And of course, Marcuse in particular was to pick up this aspect of psychoanalysis uh, when he uh, wrote Eros and Civilization and tried even to reverse the uh, notion of, uh, of a um, death instinct, uh, reverse its uh, pessimistic uh, implications and give it a, a utopian reading in a, a very, let's say, speculative and uh, complicated way. Um, so psychoanalysis was uh, a 
potential tool for uh, rethinking and expanded thinking of materialism of Marxism. It was not, however, and this was one of the things that differentiated them from Fromm and from uh, psychoanalysis and its more orthodox understanding, it was not a therapeutic tool in the present. Let us say the Frankfurt School was never interested in using uh, individual therapy, using psychoanalytic uh, therapy as a way to cure uh, the suffering of individuals in bourgeois society, in contemporary society. They thought ultimately it simply made people uh, accommodate themselves uh, to the status quo and therefore had an ultimately conservative implication. So although Lowenthal and uh, Horkheimer had had uh, their own personal analyses, Adorno, Marcuse, and the other members of the school had not, and they were very skeptical of the practical use of uh, psychoanalysis uh, for a therapeutic uh, tool, something that, of course, Eric Fromm uh, promoted, and one of the reasons why they ultimately broke with Eric Fromm. So Theodore Adorno is is often known for his uh, quote, in psychoanalysis, nothing is true except the exaggerations. So how did this pretty uh, off-quoted statement attack Freud's dichotomy between reason and pleasure? yet also question whether Herbert Marcuse's call for a life-death dialectic and a nirvana principle to overcome surplus repression, how did this could and should absolutely reconcile pleasure with reason, given non-identity, or at least Adorno's non-identity, as prefiguring a social order? Adorno's uh, position on uh, psychoanalysis is a very complicated one. As I said earlier, he was hostile to the therapeutic uh, implications of psychoanalysis. Use it cognitively rather than uh, as a tool to reconcile people to their uh, to the current situation, make them happy, make them cured, make them well-adjusted. He also had a certain skepticism towards the more utopian version uh, of psychoanalysis that Marcuse promulgated in Eros and Civilization, in which the death principle was basically reinterpreted uh, as seeking a state of non, uh, uh, non-agitation beyond uh, the uh, experiences of uh, capitalist society, a state of uh, blissful nirvana, which would allow uh, somehow humans to uh, achieve a kind of tranquility in the world. Uh, Adorno always, I think, felt that there were tensions that could not be fully overcome, uh, fully uh, tranquilized, we might say. So that one of the things that he held out for was uh, a non, uh, we might say, Hegelian negative dialectic uh, in which uh, various elements such as reason and desire, spirit and the body, uh, geist and nature, uh, subject and object, uh, that the tensions between them were maintained in a non-antagonistic constellation rather than uh, what uh, Hegel would have called uh, aufgehoben or sublated into a fully harmonious and reconciled uh, higher third. So that Adorno's position about psychoanalysis is that it <clears throat> helps us to uh, see the uh, benign tensions between ego and id, between reason and desire, rather than try to find, as Marcuse thought, a way in which reason and desire could be fully and completely 
integrated and reconciled. Uh, it's in some ways a more, we might say, realistic and even tragic, if you want to give it a slightly negative uh, connotation, more tragic position than the fully comic response, uh, comic in the sense of fully reconciling opposites that we find in Marcuse. It's a utopia that is a utopia uh, that accepts difference, non-identity, tension as potentially uh, valuable without uh, believing that a full pacification of existence uh, can ever be achieved. And so that was his somewhat, uh, I would say, delicate uh, uh, integration of psychoanalysis without it being fully and completely integrated in a sense of Marcuse's reconciliation of reason and desire. If you can, please briefly discuss Leo Lowenthal's role in the Weimar Jewish Renaissance, his ephemeral engagement with Orthodox Judaism, and I guess demonology, um, his portrait of the Jewish poet Hein, compared to Adorno's and Habermas's portraits, his approach to Karl Marx's Jewish question, and his distancing from any conception of Unpolluted, unpolluted Jewish purity. Uh, Leo Longthal was uh, with Eric Fromm uh, the uh, the only serious, um, uh, for a while at least, uh, observer of Jewish um, orthopraxis uh, who later became a member of the Frankfurt School. I mean, he in the early 1920s uh, was very much a rebel against what he saw as the watered down, uh, assimilated Judaism of his father. Uh, of his parents' generation. And he shared with many people in the immediate post-war era, post-World War I era, a fascination with the uh, more extreme mystical and uh, anti-enlightenment or counter-enlightenment dimensions of the Jewish tradition, which were at that time being discovered in the Hasidic uh, uh, and uh, uh, Eastern Jewish uh, traditions that German Jewry had left behind. So Lowenthal was a figure who uh, was searching in the early 1920s for some sort of alternative to what he saw as the dry, desiccated, assimilated, uh, enlightened Judaism uh, of uh, a uh, long tradition of accommodation to uh, things that uh, he felt were basically uh, bourgeois and unrevolutionary. Now, as the... Uh, 20s wore on, he began to lose his um, his faith that this was a valid alternative. So although flirting with Zionism, he never really became a serious Zionist, although uh, a much um, uh, involved member of the circle around Rabbi Nehemiah Noble in Frankfurt, who was a charismatic rabbi who died prematurely in the early 1920s. Uh, after Nobel's, uh, Rabbi Noble's death, he didn't continue, uh, uh, Lowenthal did not continue with his, uh, uh, his observant um, uh, defiance of his uh, father's uh, uh, liberal assimilationism. However, he remained very interested in uh, Jewish thought. And uh, during the 1920s, at a very young age, wrote a series of quite remarkable texts on various German Jewish thinkers, uh, including people uh, like Freud and Marx and Heine. And from Heine, he took a very interesting lesson. Heine's um, divergence uh, from uh, the assimilated Jewish tradition had led to his conversion to Christianity. And many people uh, saw this as a kind of uh, Jewish self-hatred, uh, an apostasy which 
was cynical. Uh, Heine had talked about it as uh, buying the entrance ticket uh, to uh, European civilization. Blomfall saw it in a more uh, forgiving way, as an expression of Heine's disappointment with assimilated Judaism, and as an attempt to remain true to the more uh, uh, revolutionary and universalist and, uh, in some sense, uh, still relevant aspects of the Jewish tradition, uh, which could be harnessed for more radical, uh, even materialist purposes. And so Heine's apostasy was not against Judaism, but against the assimilated, watered-down version that Lowenthal himself had uh, also abandoned. And then Heine later became, we might say, disillusioned with his conversion uh, and recognized that he had debts uh, that he could not fully repay to the Jewish tradition, which he had apparently left behind. And Lowenthal also, uh, I think, validated that aspect uh, of uh, Heine's uh, uh, rebelliousness. The same might be said about uh, his approach to Marx's famous or rather infamous essay on the Jewish question, an essay which has often been understood as an expression uh, of Marx's um, sometimes anti-Semitic uh, or at least self-hatred uh, relationship to his own background. Marx, remember, had come from a family of Jewish rabbis. His father had converted. Marx had no Jewish training and no interest, uh, as far as we can tell, in Jewish theology or Jewish practice. But nonetheless, in that essay, especially in the second half of it, uh, had denounced the Jews as uh, inherently um, lustful after money and uh, equivalent to uh, capitalism per se, and one had to free oneself, emancipate oneself from the Jews, um, understood, or from Judaism at least, understood as uh, equivalent to capitalism, exchange principle, market uh, principle, and money. Now, what Lowenthal argued was that basically... Marx's repudiation of Judaism was really, once again, uh, as it was in the case of Heine, an expression of the deeper uh, Jewish uh, traditional desire for justice, traditional desire for redemption, which manifested itself in a critique of capitalism, critique of bourgeois society, which was then identified, alas, with the Jews. Now, what he neglected to say, and uh, others have recently, I think, uh, made this clearer, is that what Marx also understood in attacking what he called the dirty Jewish uh, practice of uh, being interested in money and so forth, was that Marx was also arguing for the importance of material concerns, of material practice, of the importance of redeeming the body, understood as, Jew, as dirty, but in fact, uh, a body that uh, had its needs, a body that was not simply to be spiritualized away. So that when Marx talked about in the Jewish question that Christianity was the sublime version of what in Judaism was simply vulgar, he was not, in fact, uh, supporting the idea of the sublime as superior to the vulgar, but was reversing that uh, trajectory, reversing that hierarchy. I was arguing that the vulgar, the Jewish vulgarity, we might say, was in fact bringing the Jews closer to the uh, demands of the material body, the suffering body, the desiring body, against uh, a kind of a Christian spiritualization which denied uh, the body, was too idealistic and not materialist enough. So this was a version of materialism that needed to be preserved, even in its base form, uh, and that Marx, in a complicated, indirect, and perhaps not fully coherent way, had gotten in touch with that. 
And I think Lowenstall uh, understood that um, in his critique of uh, the idea of purification. Now, the Jews themselves, I mean, this is a complicated issue, uh, the idea of keeping kosher and so forth, very interested in purity. But nonetheless, there is something about uh, this being in touch with the body, being in touch with uh, the needs of the suffering body uh, that allows uh, the Jewish tradition to be seen as a bulwark against an overly spiritualized, overly idealized, uh, overly anti-material understanding of redemption. I think Lowenthal, in a way, was uh, anticipating that understanding of a base materialist reading of Marx's essay on the Jewish question. Please compare Hans Bubenberg's pre-reflective life world, as well as extensive metaphors and non-conceptual myths for those incomprehensible circumstances, with Adorno's apophatic emphasis on the non-conceptual object, conceptual realism, and what you refer to as magical nominalism. If you can, please also discuss both of their critiques of Martin Heidegger's being, as in, quote, equiprimordial unity of the conceptual and non-conceptual, as well as differences between magical uh, nominalism and platonic eternal essences. Uh, This is an extraordinarily difficult uh, question to do justice to because both Blumenberg and Adorno uh, were thinkers of incredible subtlety, and virtually anything I say will be a a kind of um, caricature of their position. But I think both of them were aware uh, of what might be seen as the uh, necessity but insufficiency of conceptualization. Uh, what I mean by that is the conceptualization, that is to say, the subsuming of non-identical uh, particulars under essential categories. Conceptualization was necessary, that it was impossible to uh, function in a world that uh, necessitated uh, human uh, stratagems of uh, self-preservation, impossible to function in that world without using language to create concepts which yoked together uh, distinct particulars. And yet, concepts uh, could also be construed as the domination of the particular, the domination of the non-identical, the domination of the preconceptual in ways that uh, basically did not do justice to the uh, inherent individuality and irreducibility of what was being uh, yoked together under the concept, what was being essentialized, what was being turned into a mere example of something else. So both of them tried to argue for the value of uh, the balance between conceptuality and non-conceptuality or unconceptuality or that which escaped from uh, the concept, that which was in excess of the concept, that which could not be completely exhausted by the concept. So then the question is, well, what is that other of the concept? What is the non-identical? What is the uh, thing that, uh, or the uh, excess, or whatever you want to call it, it's very difficult even to give it a term. What is it that is beyond? And here they thrashed around, really, to come up with alternatives. So in the case of Blumenberg, he was fascinated with various strategisms uh, in language, metaphor, uh, myth, uh, the anecdote, all ways in which human culture provided uh, basically attempts to um, avoid the uh, ways in which concepts were dominating and constraining. So metaphors uh, gave us uh, analogies. They gave us paradigmatic examples in colorful uh, imagistic language 
of what could not be simply tamed or domesticated by overarching concepts. And he argued that they were absolute metaphors that could not be reduced to concepts. They were not preliminary versions of concepts, which then could be simply uh, forgotten. He also argued that myths, uh, even though they sometimes uh, seemed fanciful and uh, were based on a kind of uh, early version of human attempts to uh, make sense of the world, based on animistic uh, and personalized uh, agencies uh, rather than uh, real uh, natural forces. Myths also presented uh, a kind of alternative to uh, logos as a dried and desiccated uh, rational way of making sense of the world. Anecdotes also, because they were paradigmatic examples of something which could not be turned into law-like regularities and given uh, overly abstract meanings. These were all alternatives to uh, conceptuality, and he thought they were irreducible, that they could not be forgotten or overcome. Once they lost their ability to function, they then were simply replaced by other metaphors, other myths, new anecdotes. So this was uh, his version of non-conceptuality. It was basically one that stressed the importance of the subjective cultural interpretation of the world, which provided uh, stratagems for dealing with uh, a hostile, what he called absolute reality. Adorno had a slightly different emphasis. Adorno emphasized the resistance of objects to human subjective constraint. He argued for the uh, existence of the non-identical in a subject-object as well as intersubjective uh, constellation of elements. Uh, the ways in which the world always somehow uh, resisted human uh, control. Uh, to come back to psychoanalysis, this meant that the body, the human desiring body, the human libido, uh, let's put it uh, in its crude psychoanalytic form, could never be completely constrained by the, either the superego or the ego. Desire could never be constrained by uh, the uh, spirit. Uh, the somatic could never be completely controlled uh, by uh, rational uh, intentionality. So there was a kind of it, an id uh, as it or s uh, in the body, which was not the, uh, the ego, the uh, ich, not the I or the subject. And as a result, it was possible to see in the natural world as well a resistance, uh, the external world to the human domination of it that we saw it with the domination of nature. And so for Adorno, there was a difference not between simply concepts uh, and metaphors, but also concepts and the objects under which, uh, uh, which were under the metaphoric attempts to constrain them. And I call this uh, in uh, another essay, which is not included in this collection, a kind of nominalism, which argues for the importance of uh, names which do not uh, uh, somehow uh, allow themselves to be subsumed under concepts under generic terms, under abstract terms, names which are like proper names, which respond uh, to the individuality of a, of a, uh, a thing in the world. A, a name uh, which is like the name of a dog, uh, Fido, which refers to this particular dog rather than dog per se. And I call it magical because unlike traditional uh, nominalism, which emphasizes human conceptual construction and the use of names that are named by 
the subject who names them. Uh, it's magical in the sense that the names are the names of the actual object prior to human giving. So in the terms of what Walter Benjamin called his uh, theory of uh, names in themselves rather than the names that humans give, these are the names that are there in the Garden of Eden, we might say, the names of uh, ultimately given, I suppose, by Adam. They're Adamic names. They're the real names, the actual names, the true names, the names that are prior to the conventional giving of names after the fall into uh, the uh, cacophony of different uh, languages, the fall with the Tower of Babel. And this is all highly speculative stuff, depending on a certain version of theology, the idea of their real names, the idea of names that are not given, but are somehow um, intrinsic proper names, which are not generically uh, attributable and so forth. Uh, one has to be very careful about, uh, you know, buying this entirely. But at least the idea is that uh, Adorno wanted to argue for an inherent quality in the world which needed to be respected. And that therefore his utopia was a constellation, we might say, to come back to that metaphor, force field of collective subjectivity, human solidarity on the one hand, individual subjectivity, you and me as uh, irreducible to a generic subject, and also the objective world, the world uh, that uh, speaks back, as it were, the world that refuses to be uh, destroyed by a dominating concept. And his version of un, uh, or non-conceptuality was the resistance of that world of objects, the resistance of the non-identical uh, objective world to subjective uh, either individual or uh, intersubjective or collective subjective imposition. Uh, and so uh, whether or not this uh, could be understood in terms of names or understood in terms of images, uh, usually he applied the builder for boat here that images in terms of uh, immediate perceptual uh, imagination was uh, insufficient. Uh, this is something that one could uh, debate. And when we talk about Benjamin on color, we'll see that there was another alternative to that. But basically, this is uh, the direction that Adorno, I think, wanted to go, stressing the resistance of objects to subjects, the resistance of things to the world of conceptual or even metaphoric uh, domination, linguistic domination of things themselves. So let's talk about uh, Walter Benjamin. Uh what was the emancipation of color from the tyrannies? And first, how did such emancipation configure the Blauwater, the Blue Rider work of Wassily Kandinsky and semiotic codes of color? And then in contrast, why, uh, for Walter Benjamin, before and after 1914, what was the child's view of color that, quote, defied categorization? Uh, Benjamin's fascination with color, which uh, was at its height uh, fairly early on in his career in the 19-teens, represented one attempt to overcome the tyranny of concepts that I've spoken about a moment ago. Uh, And in terms of uh, the history of art and the history of attitudes towards color, uh, this was expressed in two different, or maybe more than two different ways. First, the valorization of color as opposed to form, design, shape, uh, the idea that color, which was normally seen as closer to the body, closer to the senses, uh, whereas uh, form was closer to the intellect, 
that color should be uh, seen as either equivalent to or perhaps in certain respects superior uh, to form. So the color needed to be emancipated. Color emancipated from uh, its um, uh, hierarchical inferiority to form, but also color emancipated from its adherence to uh, the experience world uh, of uh, representation uh, of uh, an external reality. So that color need not be uh, simply the colors that we perceive. It could be colors that uh, could be emancipated from uh, that uh, uh, necessity that uh, we might say enslavement to perception. So color is emancipated in that sense, but there's also an emancipation of the experience of color from what might be called its linguistic categorization. Let's say we think of the rainbow as having uh, the basic colors, red, orange, yellow, green, indigo, blue, and violet. And we think of other colors uh, that we've given names to in various languages. And we know, of course, if we look at the various ways in which the rainbow uh, of colors is broken uh, down in other languages, that there are various, uh, we might say, alternative ways to cut into the continuum of color and to say that this is a color that has its own integrity uh, and uh, deserves a name of its own. What Benjamin was fascinated by was the fact that color, before it is named, as the experience, say, by children prior to their entrance into language, color is continuous uh, through a series of infinite gradations, that it's not broken up, not broken up uh, by uh, discrete names, not categorizable. And although Vasily Kandinsky did attempt uh, to see a spiritual dimension in particular colors, Benjamin was far more interested in the ways in which color was on a continuum that could not be reduced uh, to linguistic categorization. So that it was basically a kind of uh, aconceptual uh, and uh, uh, in some ways even utopian alternative to the domination of uh, certain uh, conceptual categorization, something we've seen in both Bloomberg and Dorno when it came to uh, non-conceptuality. Now, ultimately, uh, Benjamin moved away from his inf- interest in color to an interest in language understood as itself potentially non-conceptual, uh, language of poetry, the language of translation, language that basically uh, was a language that could not be understood in terms of uh, conceptual meaning, but that had the capacity uh, to, like a proper name, simply be at one with the object. Uh, but at least in the 19-teens, he understood color as uh, perhaps having the same utopian uh, potential. Why did Benjamin study the quote-unquote non-utilitarian values of stamp collecting? And in in his uh, Timber Melancholy, why did he lament the perspective decline of the stamp spurred by technological advancement? And what were additional causes for this decline? Benjamin was fascinated with uh, the minutiae of everyday life and uh, sought uh, to um, read the tea leaves, as it were, uh, of the debris of a civilization that uh, was on the wane that now seemed to be passing but needed somehow to be retrieved and even its utopian potential rescued. One example of this was his fascination uh, with uh, the uh, postage stamp, which the surrealists like uh, Louis Aragon had also found to be extraordinarily rich as a source 
uh, of wonder. And Benjamin, in two basic respects, uh, I think, found in Post's Champs uh, a potential for uh, some sort of resistance to the uh, world of uh, getting and spending, the world of uh, capitalist uh, and uh, industrial uh, tyranny that he saw as uh, part of modernity. First stamps were, in some ways, um, uh, a kind of physical and visual example of uh, the possibility of the marvelous being uh, contained in the uh, the micro world of uh, small uh, utilitarian phenomena. So you put a stamp uh, on a letter to get it mailed, but each stamp has, at least it began to have at a certain point in its history, uh, it had uh, images, images that were images of history, images of, uh, the, of the natural world, images of uh, the exotic other. And uh, as a result, stamps were, in a curious way, a little micro examples of uh, the marvelous. Uh, they took, uh, especially children who collected them, uh, they took a, a child sitting in his uh, bedroom, uh, took him outside himself, living a world of uh, potential fantasy, a world of the exotic, a world of uh, exploration uh, and of adventure. But secondly, stamps could be rescued from the utilitarian uh, service. Their function uh, as uh, ways to mail letters uh, could be collected they could be collected, of course, for monetary purposes. They sometimes had value in that secondary sense, outside of their value as a ways to deliver mail. But they also could be simply collected by children, once again, uh, usually by children, not always by them, uh, as uh, non-utilitarian uh, ways to reorganize the world, to create new constellations uh, of meaning, to create new uh, aesthetic uh, and uh, non-functional ways of uh, reorganizing the world. And uh, I was a stamp collector myself as a child, and uh, certainly Benjamin's um, understanding of the function of stamps uh, was one that resonated with me. I understood the power of collecting as a kind of way to uh, recreate uh, or create for the first time through juxtaposition uh, a world that uh, had different meanings. But Benjamin was also very sensitive to the fact that this was a world that was on the wane. It was a world that was losing its power, partly because letter writing uh, had lost its power, partly because uh, the automation uh, of stamps meant that you had uh, you know, a, a way to uh, cancel them and to uh, create um, stamp meters. And also because, although he did not live to see it, but we did, uh, the, uh, the replacement of letter writing through uh, email and other types of uh, text, uh, texting and so forth of uh, communication. So this is a world that is now disappearing, the world of stamp collecting, the world of sending letters through stamps. And Benjamin, through his nostalgia for it, um, created in uh, someone like myself uh, a sense of uh, mourning, we might say, uh, or melancholy. I call it timbre melancholie rather than timbre mania. Timbre being the French word for stamp. Uh, which uh, was used to describe the mania of collecting in the mid-19th century, timbre melancholy, uh, a loss of the sense of uh, value in collecting stamps and creating this childhood hobby, which is now, alas, uh, uh, basically disappearing from the world.
Can you briefly elucidate the late Miriam Hansen's appraisal, however tenuous, of contributions by Siegfried Krakauer, Benjamin, and Adorno to the notion of, quote-unquote, counter-public spheres rooted in sensory experience, as well as her skewing of Habermas's bourgeois public sphere? What is your own appraisal, especially given the rational critical dimensions of the discursive bourgeois public sphere and its disclosable language? Uh, Miriam Hansen, who alas uh, prematurely died um, about uh, eight or ten years ago, a very, very uh, estimable theorist of film, a very close friend, much beloved by people at the University of Chicago and elsewhere in Germany and around the world, wrote an uh, extraordinarily interesting book on cinema and experience, which uh, brought Adorno into conversation with Benjamin and Krakauer on the issue of uh, film. Adorno usually was understood to be simply hostile to film. She showed the extent to which she was uh, seriously interested in film, not quite as much as Krakauer or Benjamin, but interested enough to make him part of a trio of critical theorists who were fascinated by the possibilities of film. And she used the theories of Oscar Naik and Alexander Kluge uh, to make sense of what she saw as the counter-public sphere uh, of film going, of uh, film audiences who created through their uh, collective solidarity of watching films a possibility of overcoming uh, the individualism of bourgeois aesthetics and the individualism of bourgeois life. The counter-public sphere was created not through discourse, not through argumentation, not through uh, the communicative interaction that Habermas had argued, but rather through shared sensuous experience in the uh, cinema. So we all go to a comedy and we all laugh together. We go to a horror film, we all scream together. And I'm sure that we experience uh, the difference between watching a film at home on television and one in the theater. And she argued that the latter created a kind of potential for uh, a non-bourgeois counter-sphere, one that went against uh, class distinction. Now, my own feeling was that this was uh, a bit too ambitious, that the idea of a public sphere and here I remain a bit more of a Habermasian than Miriam Hansen. The idea of a public sphere is one in which there has to be argumentation. Now, it depends what you're arguing about. Uh, and here, uh, the uh, shared experience of going to the cinema gives people something to argue about and gives people a common uh, background, a common uh, vocabulary, you might say. But still, one has to have uh, the space for critical rather than passive uh, absorption of the uh, material that is being argued about. So Krakauer in particular talked about the value of distraction. Uh, uh, the modern cinema allowed you to uh, experience something in a state of distraction. Uh, I was never quite as uh, happy with that as I think Miriam was. I always thought that no distraction uh, could also produce uh, a passivity which ended by simply reinforcing the status quo or allowing you to be even manipulated. So I think you needed to have uh, the added critical distance. And to this extent, I always thought that Habermas' notion of a public sphere in which argumentation, listening rather than simply viewing, uh, capacity to uh, weigh arguments and to be swayed by rather than manipulated by them, to be persuaded rather than manipulated, uh, was absolutely crucial. So for that reason, although I found her expanded notion of a counter-public sphere based on Nathan Kruger suggestive, I resisted it uh, to a certain extent because of my, let's call it still Habermasian allegiances.
What were possible ironies at play in Herbert Marcuse's 1964 One-Dimensional Man? And why do you contend that he adopted a world historical narrative of stable irony that aimed for a two-dimensional pursuit of personal excellence, resistance to settled meetings and rhetorical eclipses, as well as the rise of more meaningful political engagement? And why did the media depict Marcuse as the guru of the new left? That's kind of a perennial question. Um, Habermas' One Dimensional Man was uh, an extraordinarily important book in my own um, first interest in critical theory. And the irony of the book, uh, and this is what I point out at the beginning of this essay, the irony of the book is that uh, it basically depicted a very bleak world in which the Marcuse, did I say Habermas? Marcuse, Marcuse's One Dimensional Man, <clears throat> was a book that appeared in 1964 uh, at a time when uh, I uh, was first becoming interested in uh, critical theory. The irony of the book's appearance was that it emerged at a moment uh, when uh, the new left was just beginning uh, to uh, uh, become uh, a force in American politics. But the book itself uh, emphasized the ways in which dissent, negation, uh, critique had been absorbed by the system. Uh, two-dimensionality had become one-dimensional, and we were all basically, uh, if not robots, at least uh, happily uh, accepting of uh, a kind of, uh, uh, you know, basically, uh, well, what he called one-dimensional uh, conformism. So the book is one that uh, was contradicted by the reality of that uh, moment. Now, what I tried to do in the, this particular essay is to figure out the role of irony itself in the book. And I go through several possibilities. One, a kind of cynical irony in which the world is basically, uh, as it was in the Weimar Republic, a world in which all um, aspirations, all utopian goals were thwarted. And it was a world in which you, know, you basically had a kind of uh, uh, survival of the fittest, uh, very cynical world that say Brecht showed in Three Penny Opera. The second version was a version of what might be called uh, a universal irony based on the impossibility of language to accept to be true to reality, one that uh, informed uh, the uh, irony at uh, post-structuralist deconstruction, the work, say, of Paul DeMond emphasized, an irony which also was anti-utopian. Neither of these, I think, explain what Adorno or Horkheimer or Certainly, Marcuse felt uh, was ironic about the current world. Um, uh, and although I, irony was difficult to maintain uh, in a world which was fully one-dimensional, nonetheless, I think uh, at the deepest level, Marcuse still held on to what might be called a stable notion of dramatic irony, in which although he could uh, uh, know and his assumed a community of readers could know that there was a potential for a different narrative, a more redemptive narrative, a narrative that uh, was a narrative ultimately of emancipation. The world in which we lived was a world of false, uh, one-dimensional uh, and uh, ideological uh, beliefs that uh, were uh, contrary to that larger narrative of utopian possibility. So Marcuse was still operating with the, with the hope that he could read the world as a as a narrative, a uh, single narrative of historical potential historical redemption, one that 
uh, although the working class, the traditional Marxist uh, analysis of uh, the succession of feudal, bourgeois, socialist, and communist stages, that this was not one we could uh, count on, nonetheless had the potential to go in the right direction. Now, my own feeling is that this is very difficult still to maintain, that this idea of a world historical narrative from which one can launch an ironic critique of a failed understanding of the participants in it today, it's very hard to maintain. So the, the only type of irony that is perhaps still plausible, and this is difficult to express in a soundbite form, is one which draws on the work of people like Christoph Menke and Jonathan Leah, which I try to spell out at the end of this essay, in which we know that there is no firm foundation in a larger narrative of redemption. We know that there is no single world historical uh, meta-narrative uh, of, uh, of uh, hope. That emancipatory narratives, the, like the ones Marx had held on to, Hegel had held on, that these have now pretty much been destroyed. And yet, we must operate, or should operate at least, with an expectation that even though our hopes may be thwarted, even though our norms may not be utterly and completely groundable in universal uh, categories. We nonetheless need to operate as if we had uh, this uh, goal uh, in mind, as if we still believed in norms that we could not fully defend, as if we still believed uh, that emancipation uh, was possible. We should not sink into the basically uh, what I would call impotent ironism, which allows one to feel that all uh, hopes are are going to be defeated, all projects are going to be uh, unsuccessful, uh, all emancipatory projects uh, will be basically thwarted. So it's a very modest version of irony, uh, one that has still, I think, uh, the potential to act with uh, some energy towards heroic normative goals rather than simply resign uh, uh, acceptance of the world as it, alas, must be. To conclude the podcast, why do you believe that scholars should study the counter-enlightenment, especially given the alt-rights convolution of the Frankfurt School's quote-unquote authoritarian personality analysis, as well as the appropriation of quote-unquote leftist criticism of neoliberal ideas by none other than neoconservative Jewish commentators, among others? And how do your contentions relate, finally going back to the title, to Adorno's reconfiguration of the splinters in your eye um, aphorism and the splintered reality of devising a history of the Frankfurt School. The last essay of the collection uh, is uh, two parts, basically. One written in uh, in 2011, uh, when the uh, first alt-right critique uh, of the Frankfurt School as the source of political correctness and cultural Marxism uh, became manifest to me. And then one written uh, eight or nine years later, uh, trying to uh, bring it up to date. Now, the alt-right meme, uh, which denies, uh, which uh, basically caricatures the Frankfurt School as a source of political uh, correctness and cultural Marxism, is based on an extraordinarily narrow, distorted, uh, and uh, prejudiced version of its legacy. And I don't want to go into that now. Uh, It's been widely condemned, but not fully destroyed. And the last one finds it um, still operative in the highest reaches of American uh, uh, political life, as I argue in the end of the addendum to that essay, uh, by showing how much uh, even members of the Trump administration have been affected by it. 
But be that as it may, the question you're asking concerns the counter-enlightenment and why it should be uh, given a dialectical reading, why I talk about the dialectic of the counter-enlightenment. Well, first of all, the Enlightenment itself, despite being simply emancipatory and productive, was understood by the Frankfurt School as in need of a dialectical, that is to say, a complicated pro and con negative and positive assessment at aspects that were emancipatory and aspects that were not. The reaction to it, the counter-enlightenment, is, I think, equally in need of a comparable uh, dialectical uh, critique. That is to say, why did this meme uh, attacking the Frankfurt School occur? Why has the alt-right had so much success in the past decade? Why does Trump and Bolsonaro and Orban and other figures who have achieved such prominence uh, in this past decade, why have they uh, had the success they have had in the uh, critique of globalization, critique of elitist uh, uh, appropriation uh, of uh, the uh, 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 anti-globalization argument? Uh, Why have they had such success? Why has populism had such success? And I have no simple answer to this, but what I think we have to do is to take seriously the objections made to something like the authoritarian personality pathologization uh, of uh, the uh, alt-right. Because what it does is basically produce a kind of uh, us-versus-them demonization of those with whom we disagree. Now, many of the people on the alt-right are, I think, in some, I suppose, metaphoric sense, truly demonizable. That is to say, they are racists, they are anti-Semites, they are irrational proto-fascists. And this small group, which earned the title of deplorables when uh, Hillary Clinton was running for president, are people who are perhaps beyond redemption. And one can only have what we might call a strategic relationship. You have to fight them and, if possible, uh, marginalize, destroy, and minimize the, the hurt that they will inflict on the rest of us, the way we had to fight fascism in World War II and have uh, a kind of unconditional surrender uh, attitude towards them. But this is a small group. The vast majority of people who supported Trump or support Bolsonaro and Orban are people whose agendas may be confused, but who may be reacting to pain, may be reacting to uh, conditions which uh, render them basically victims. And although I don't want to argue that we have to simply accept their self-description as victims, as unimpeachable. Nonetheless, we have to take seriously the pain they feel. And this comes back to the title of this collection, Splinters in Your Eye. The suffering that they feel is not suffering that we should simply dismiss, uh, that we should simply say is illegitimate. That The suffering of the people who support the Trumps and Bolsonaros and Orbans of the world is also something that has to be understood and has to be dealt with rather than simply uh, ignored. Now, I can't obviously give you the way to do that in the uh, either either in the short ep- uh, interview or in the book itself. But until we take seriously the suffering of the people who create the counter enlightenment, until we give them the dignity uh, of people who need to be listened to as well as dismissed. Until we're able to be more inclusive than exclusive in our approach to them, we will end up with a kind of eternal polarization, which undermines the hopes for reconciliation that I think, at its most utopian, the Frankfurt School believed in. 
So what we need is a dialectic not of enlightenment, also a dialectic of counter-enlightenment, which goes beyond simply dismissing them as deplorables, uh, as authoritarian personalities, as neo-fascists, but being able sometimes to hear them in a way that allows them to feel that they are included and have the dignity that they so obviously crave uh, and feel they have been denied by the elites uh, of uh, globalization, the elites of uh, what, uh, you know, basically had been uh, a status quo that uh, ignored uh, their real grievances. So let me end with that. It's kind of ecumenical. It's a belief that critical theory can be used not only to uh, verify and attack, uh, to verify traditional leftist positions, but also to expand the reach of uh, critical analysis to include an understanding of why people in other political traditions have felt aggrieved and to try to figure out, and this is an extremely ambitious agenda, the ways in which uh, we can include rather than simply dismiss uh, and uh, polarize uh, political uh, environment, which is, alas, uh, descending into increased uh, uncivil polarization. So let me perhaps finish with that utopian hope. And thank you very much for asking me these uh, challenging questions. Well, last question. What's next for you? I know that you're, you know that you're now emeritus. Is there anything on board for you next? Well, I have actually in the moment a book in process called Genesis and Validity, which deals with uh, the methodology of intellectual history and the way in which it interfaces with critical theory. And that's a book that's uh, a dozen or so essays, which I've written over the past few years, which I think will come out with the University of Pennsylvania Press uh, in a couple of years. And then my final hope uh, is to put together essays I've written and do a much more synthetic treatment of the idea of magical nominalism, which I touch on briefly here. I have several essays, including one on Adorno uh, musical nominalism, which tries to tease out the idea of magical nominalism. And that will be, I would imagine, my final large, my final large project. And But I also, uh, you know, I'm very much stimulated by uh, the possibility of writing on shorter, uh, shorter, ep- uh, shorter exercises on contemporary issues. And I've done a number of these uh, recently, one on the Frankfurt School's uh, notion of racket society and Trump's uh, uh, work uh, as a racketeer, cum president, president cum racketeer, and the film The Irishman, which was published a couple of months ago in the uh, Los Angeles Review of Books. So that kind of uh, much more uh, timely writing is also, I hope, in the future. Thanks. Well, we look forward to those projects. Sort of out of time now. This is uh, Ryan Tripp behalf of New Books in History and Professor Martin Jay. The book is Splinters in Your Eye, Frankfurt School Provocations, out now by Verso. Please tune in next time.